Hi, I'm Nicola Kilner, CEO and co-founder of Desiem, Parent to the Ordinary. And to me, it's a matter of kindness. Leadership can be learned, but some people are born with the innate capacity to lead. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. Being a natural leader often has a you-know-it-when-you-see-it quality. Instead of learning to become an effective leader, they have instinctive ability to inspire others to follow their vision. The charisma of such leaders can have both a light and dark quality. And Nicola Kilner has had to navigate both as the co-founder and CEO of Desium. Through incredible ups and very public downs, she has built a formidable global brand and a strategic exit to Estee Lauder with empathy, honesty, and radical transparency. Nicola, this took a lot of coordinating by our teams, but I'm so happy that we were able to make it work. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kelly. I'm glad I finally got to be here talking to you. The launch of Desium and the runaway success of The Ordinary sort of flipped the script on the beauty industry with a new formula of transparency, value, and science. And I think it's very easy for the industry to sort of forget the origins of businesses. So as a way of sort of setting the foundation for our conversation, can you take us back to the very beginning and share the vision of the business? And I think it launched in 2013, right? Correct. So Decium's from the Latin word for the number 10, and it was all about building 10 brands at once. So Brandon Truax, our late founder, he'd been in the beauty industry for many years, and he had set up a few different beauty brands before Decium. And I met him when he was actually at his previous beauty company called Indeed Labs. And at the time, I was working as a beauty buyer at Boots in the UK. And Brandon was just you know, when you meet one of those people in your life and you just know your life's going to change forever because he was a true genius, a true visionary. And I think most importantly, I could just tell he had this kindness at his heart and kind of just a love for kind of doing the right thing and, and never just accepting the status quo. And I remember when he left Indeed Labs, being really sad as kind of the buyer at Boots thinking, gosh, like, I love working with him. I love his emails. I love what he's doing. So we kept in touch and that's when he started talking about this concept of Decium and building 10 brands at once. And it was something that just really excited me. You know, as in my early 20s, I felt like I'd had a good learning from working at a corporate and kind of learned a lot. But I always had a dream of doing something kind of more entrepreneurial. So when I got the chance to kind of join in and do Decium with him, it just felt like the most exciting opportunity of my life. We started in early 2013. And what many people don't realize is, you know, for the three and a half years that Desian was running before The Ordinary, you know, we had other brands and we definitely had what we felt at the time was kind of many successes. But then, you know, The Ordinary really just exploded things to a new level. But I think the concept really behind Desian was to bring everything in-house. So actually do everything from communications, design, formulation, manufacturing, creative, research and development, regulatory, to really just build this ecosystem. Because I think what's hard in the beauty industry, and fully understand the reason why this has to happen, but ultimately a lot of brands start with someone who has a good idea, but then pulling in lots of agencies and kind of outsourcing different things. Because it's expensive, it's hard to kind of think I'm going to hire a different person for every function to begin but I think actually the difference it made, everyone was living and breathing 
Decian was our lives. You know, we were probably fortunate that for many of us at the time, you know, we were still in our kind of early 20s. So actually we were in a place where actually we could dedicate our every waking moment, passion, idea, which I think, you know, is important kind of in that initial stage of a startup culture. So I think really having all of those people in-house made a huge difference because I always think if you're using an agency, whilst you get the benefits of talent, ultimately people have to wear different hats because it's the nature of an agency. But when you're all together, you never know when your regulatory person is actually going to give you the best idea that someone in marketing hadn't even thought of because actually you're all kind of seeing it from end to end. But I think actually the other big advantage it gave us was the ability to test and to try. Because when you have just one brand, you know, you can design a brand that you love and you do market research and everyone tells you, you know, this is the best idea, everyone loves it. But ultimately, until it's on sale to the consumer, you actually don't know if it's what they want or not. So The Ordering was actually the 11th brand we launched under the umbrella. And actually, it was a brand that we we never thought it was going to be a commercial success. We actually launched it to more make a marketing point around how good Neod, one of our other skincare brands, was. But I think, again, just kind of having this agility to create new brands, trial them, and then when kind of they, they weren't going so well, kind of put attention on the ones that were getting traction is actually a big privilege that not many startups get. So actually, you often get told to focus, but we always had this saying that focus is overrated because actually sometimes it's good just to kind of throw lots of mud at the wall, see what sticks, and then kind of follow the idea that way. It's interesting because what you were doing was early in many respects because we're seeing more and more sort of platforms or incubators launch, albeit not sort of a brand or a portfolio of their own brands, very often finding other founders and bringing their visions to life. But that was very early on. And when you started, it was D to C, wasn't it? So you've always been very close to the consumer. So we've never officially been only DTC, but I think it's always been a big part of our business. Uh, so, you know, in the early days from Boots, not just our own website, but actually we worked a lot with different online retailers. And I actually think for any indie brand or any new brand, the online players are kind of your best friends in that moment because it's so much easier to tell your story when you get a web page versus, you know, we, we still struggle now, like in the likes of Sephora and Ulta, like how do you tell the consumer everything you want to tell them on what can be quite limited shelf space versus online when someone ends up on your product page or your brand page where actually you have this amazing space to kind of share your story, have reviews, just that content's phenomenal. So I would definitely say we were a very digital brand and we continue to be, you know, even when we look at our performance with partners now, we always over-index online and I think that is because we have so much information and content to share. But you're also, you've made brick and mortar, specifically your own brick and mortar stores, sort of an activation point of the brand. There's a lot of them right now. Yeah, so we have 33 stores around the world, and that's everywhere from Hong Kong, Seoul, New York, Melbourne, Sydney, London, Amsterdam. And I think, you know, for us, our own stores, it's really about that human connection, that experience. And again, just this ability to kind of tell our brand story. And it's interesting because we've always looked in terms of that retail channel to say that it's very difficult to have your own bricks and mortar stores and kind of make a big level of profit. But I remember from the beginning, before we even knew how the performance would be, we used to say, look, if we can break even, I mean, having a store on Fifth Avenue 
it's like having a permanent billboard. So actually, if it doesn't cost us anything, then actually what good marketing is that to kind of have these doors in kind of key cities and key locations around the world? And I think, you know, we're still refining our model, the size we need, the space, the brands. But I think for us, you know, we put so much attention into kind of our people in stores, the education piece, so that we know, you know, many people find the ordinary, some people find it simple, some people find it complicated. But if you come into one of our stores, we hope everyone would have that experience where they're talking to someone who's truly knowledgeable about ingredients, about kind of how you can layer and build regimes through them. You led the brand through some very difficult times that were played out sort of on social media very publicly. But the business has come out the other side and grown to be a formidable global brand. Can you share how you navigated that time as a leader? Because it was also very personal. And how it formed the business as it stands today. Because it still feels like the DNA is there, but also there has been a shift It was undoubtedly the hardest time of certainly my life and actually so many of our team. Because again, I mentioned you, when you're in those early startup days, you really are living and breathing everything together. Like you're far more than colleagues because you're you're just in each other's lives, your details, the highs, the lows. And it's very difficult when someone that you care so much about and actually so many of our team did, you start to see someone really struggling and I think what's so difficult about the mental health spaces, and again, not to say it's easy, but you know, in other areas of medicine and health, you can have a blood test, you can diagnose, and then there's a plan, there's an acceptance. What makes it so difficult when it's mental health is that it's very difficult to diagnose. And actually, when that person doesn't recognize what's happening, and actually, I remember during the process, someone saying to me, which kind of stuck with me at the time, Bad example now for language, but the language they used at the time said, you know, it's like you're speaking Russian to them, as in it might sound like you're both speaking English in the same kind of language, but actually there is no understanding between the conversation you're having. And it's very difficult to kind of get your mindset around that when you're receiving emails, there's Instagram posts, you're having all of these conversations that feel very hurtful, very sad, very difficult to understand. And I think, you know, I said it earlier about kind of the word kindness for me, because I think, you know, really that's what got us through that period, that actually everyone, our team, showed the most tremendous level of kindness to each other. Our partners, you know, at this time, ELC, SA Lord Companies were a minority shareholder. The lengths they went to to kind of really support us to try and get their help. Everyone just loved Brandon. They wanted the best and even when a court order happened, it was always a temporary remove. Let's kind of try and get him the help that he needs. And I think it's an area, you know, we still have many conversations because we've got so much to learn about the area of mental health because the whole world like, was watching on Instagram, was watching what was happening. Brandon would get sectioned in New York, in London, in Toronto, and then would get released and we'd kind of just go in this spiral and everyone tells you, you know, you've just got to wait to reach rock bottom. And then, you know, they, then they'll realize and accept help. And I feel like we just had the worst ending because rock bottom was final for us. So I think there's just so much we still need to learn as humans, as, you know, I remember like conversations with Instagram and they couldn't take the post down and just, it was such a new, well, not a new thing, but I think kind of probably how public it was on Instagram at the time was kind of one of probably the more first public cases, I think, to kind of really go through that. 
And again, it's hard because, you know, as you say, the business was exploding. And I think what was also hard was, you know, the demand for the brand and the products was going through the roof, not only because it launched at the end of 2016. So we were only, the ordering was only just over a year old when obviously things started to change with Brendan. So it was still very new and exploding in its own right. But then we were also getting all of this extra attention because, you know, we saw the press, we saw the conversations, we saw people saying, you know, look what's happening to their founder, but gosh, they make the best skincare products in the world. Like you should try their products, see what they're doing. So then it was very difficult when you've got a business that's trying to scale, you've got this kind of turmoil happening internally. And I think for me, just the kindness to the team of actually how we got through that the consumer support, the investor support, and actually everyone was just, I think, committed to really helping Brandon, but also kind of helping what he'd built. And again, everyone had this hope that he would always get better and kind of come back as continue to be our kind of visionary. Yeah, it is one of those things about people who are creative geniuses. Sometimes there's this sort of dark side to all of their creativity. And A lot of these people navigate the world in a very different way, which is what makes them so brilliant. But it was hard to watch because it was this amazing brand, this like visionary founder that was clearly having a really rough time. I couldn't agree more. I think the line is so thin between genius and then when it kind of crosses into this mental health area. And, you know, we see even today, you know, still alive, some of the most creative, incredible entrepreneurs in the world where we see occasions where actually maybe they are kind of crossing that thin line between genius and again I think that's another area because I mean these people are going to make the world a better place so actually how do we support the fact that they can unlock these amazing places in their brain to kind of vision this new world but how do we also support them and I think is another area that would be interesting to research. Yeah absolutely. I think that Decium initiated sort of a revolution in beauty, and the formula and the formula for success has been replicated and imitated, and that always happens. Yet the ordinary remains the brand everybody is chasing. So how has the brand maintained its competitive edge in such a crowded, noisy category? I mean, I don't think I've ever seen skincare as crowded with new launches and as competitive. Well, I think firstly, I mean, it's, I guess, always flattering when you see kind of the inspiration. And I think, you know, Brandon always wanted to make the world of skincare more transparent, more fair, more accessible. And actually, the more brands that do that is ultimately a good thing for the consumer and the industry. So I think there's definitely kind of strength that comes from that. I think, you know, you always have the advantage when you are the first that it's kind of easier to maintain that position. And I also think the other thing that allows us to maintain that And I guess competitive advantage in certain markets, which I'll come on to, is the fact that ultimately, you know, one of the things that I always think is kind of unique about the ordinary is we always had this viewpoint that luxury shouldn't be defined by price points. So we see ourselves as aspirational, as hip, as cool, as kind of, you know, we see ourselves sitting alongside Aesop and kind of all of those brands in your kind of bathroom shelf. Yet the price point is one that's accessible. And I think actually... People look at what the ordinaries achieved, and I think sometimes that gets overlooked. And actually, you know, when we were first launching in our distribution strategy, you know, outside of the online players, it was always like, we want to be in Harvey Nichols, like, let's start in kind of Harvey Nichols, Harrods, let's kind of be next to Tom Ford, Chanel, like, let's not devalue the brand and actually let's really innovate there in terms of 
position should no longer be defined by price point, but actually about authenticity and story. Because again, I think what's hard sometimes when you have a lower price point product, particularly in skincare, people are skeptical. And I think had we appeared in pharmacy in mass, people would say, well, it's just another $6 serum. It can't work. It can't do anything. So that was a really kind of tailored, curated part of the strategy. And I think that's the piece that often is actually overlooked by some of the brands that have come in to do what we've done. I think it takes time and kind of a curated strategy to do that positioning. But when we kind of look at being the first, gives us that advantage. But I think one of the challenges now for indie brands is, you know, when a brand was designed 30, 40 years ago, they could develop their global strategy over the next two decades of which market to launch when they're ready, kind of take that time to get there. Today's world through social, through podcasts, just through the world of the internet and kind of how connected we are. When a brand explodes, the demand is there from every country around the world. And actually, it takes a lot of time to officially get into those countries because you have to register products, you have to check you're compliant. Then you have the whole packaging, languages, having a team there, who are we going to partner with? The ordinary is six years old now, but you know we've only just launched in India as an example. So we launched in India last month in June. And actually... Phenomenal. We've been the biggest launch ever at Nike, biggest launch for ELC India, so lots of success. But, you know, I look at India and you have Minimalist there, which is a brand that was actually born after us, but were born before us in India. And we had the same thing in kind of different markets we're going to. So actually, we then had to look at those markets where, you know, definitely from those in the know of beauty, have some awareness of the ordinary, but actually to many people, we then look like the copycat and the challenger. So again, this is just like a different way we have to look at different markets, but definitely I think for indie brands, it's something that I think everyone now needs to be aware of that actually when things explode, everyone's watching around the world. So you kind of have to pick carefully or quickly kind of which markets you can get to. I think one of the things that has fascinated me is that you continue to push the envelope and you are not afraid to poke the tiger. You make the beauty industry tackle issues head on that many other brands kind of market around. The beauty industry has some of the most brilliant marketers, I think, in any category, their ability to use words to make claims. So two of these most recent ones is everything is a chemical campaign. And when you launched The Ordinary Hair, care, I was honestly blown away and also said sort of finally at the same time. But this type of marketing also comes with predictable blowback. So how do you develop marketing strategies to tackle these conversations? I'm sure that you kind of probably play out scenarios that you know, the obvious blowback. But then there's kind of that unknown, right, when you put something as controversial out into the universe. So I think one thing at Desian, so we really are science first in everything we do. Um, and if you get a chance to come to Toronto, I can see it from here. We have the most incredible labs. I'd probably be our chief scientific officer, the most amazing team of R&D chemists, people that are so passionate about science. So everything from a product we develop to a campaign we do actually comes from the science department versus a marketing department. And I think actually that does make a big difference because we're always leading with science first. And again, that's not for everyone, which is completely fine. But I think for the people that love Desian, that love the ordinary, I think they have the respect for science and facts. And, you know, we always say, I think for too long, 
the beauty industry has had too much fear mongering. Like beauty is supposed to be an industry that is about feel good, about being good. We should be empowering everyone to feel better about themselves and not putting this fear into kind of like clean beauty. What even is that? Who's defining it? Who's regulating it? No one. And it means nothing. <laughs> exactly. So actually, we always say, you know, let's just be very, tell the facts and then just really empower consumers to make their own decisions. And, you know, that really is what the ordinary was about. Let's talk about the ingredients, what percentage they are. You know, if you go on our website, you can see the pH of the product, like any information you want, you can kind of see there. And I think that comes through in all of our communications. So when you are going to launch Okay, so we'll use the hair care where you use sulfates, where sulfates have been sort of this no-no ingredient. I think it kind of along the lines of parabens in editorial, all of a sudden consumers feel like they're horrible and should not be used. Obviously, when you make this huge statement that you've launched a product with sulfates, but also said why, how do you execute that strategy? Because you kind of put it out there and then you have to be prepared for almost anything because everything happens so quickly. And you also have to probably educate people in the store who are on the front lines. So do you prepare for that blowback? I'm curious because, or you just let it kind of evolve. Whenever we come up with a campaign or product, I mean, we, we do extensive training with everyone from our social teams, customer happiness, to those working in store, so that everyone is, again, prepared with the facts, prepared with kind of the answers to the questions. And I think, again, you know, the sulfate topic for us was just common sense. I mean, it's crazy, this kind of reputation of sulfates when it comes to shampoos, when you know, most toothpaste have sulfates in. People are using them in their mouths without questioning it. But then again, because beauty has just become this kind of fear-mongering, we're happy to put it in our mouths, but not on our hair. It makes no sense. And again, when we researched it, I mean, sulfates are an amazing ingredient for cleaning. One of the challenges is that I think it's been used at too high levels, which then can create more stripping, etc. But if it's used around 4%, which is kind of the level the scientists research and kind of agreed upon it's actually one of the best ingredients out there to clean your hair that's what the science says let's follow the science so I think you know it's hard when there's kind of misconceptions and you know many people have this I want to use sulfates but when you ask them why they don't really know why it's just become a thing so again for us it's always just about finding the facts and then making sure that we can educate everyone in the right way. I think the facts are so important. We recently did a piece on, and now I'm thinking we should have reached out to you guys, on clean beauty. And there are a lot of these documentaries that come out. And we really wanted to show both sides to the story. And the sad thing is people have lots of opinions who are on the other side of the clean conversation, but no one wants to go on record. We are always happy to go on record, so always come to us. It was really disappointing. And Carla, who wrote the piece, spent so much time. And she's like, maybe we just need to scrap it. And I was like, no, we need to, like, this is what we're about. We have to tell both sides because there are two sides to this story. But it is disappointing that not everyone is willing to kind of go out on that limb and, and share their opinions publicly because that doesn't help the consumer. It certainly doesn't. And, you know, especially, you know, for an indie brand, having a voice, having a purpose, having something you believe in, I think is just so important both when it comes to your position on 
ingredients, on formulas, the products you're designing, but then also business practices. You know, we see more and more, you know, we always try to think more around mindsets rather than kind of age demographics. But actually, you know, for the kind of enlightened and curious consumer who I think most of Desians are, they do care that we're doing the right thing for the planet, we're doing the right thing for our people. So actually, you need to have a voice because consumers want to know what you believe in. In February 2021, Nestle Lauder paid a billion dollars to increase their stake in Decium to 76%. And I think the brand had an enterprise value of $2.2 billion, which is amazing. And you know, strategic deals like this are most founders' dreams. How has life changed post-transaction and what's in store for the future? Because it feels like nothing has changed from the outside. You're still the renegade brand and doing your thing. So I think what was really good actually about the way that this deal was structured was because they came on as a minority in 2017. We actually had many years working with them. They knew us, we knew them, we kind of knew each other's values, we knew what each other really stood for. That actually meant the, the process has been honestly like a dream you know like there's always headaches and kind of teething pains but actually on the whole it's been amazing and I do think it's probably the best way when big conglomerate strategics do make these acquisitions that you know we're still on we have another two years before they'll become the 100% owner in 2024 so actually that will have been a seven-year journey with them where actually you just trust each other you respect each other you kind of grow together. Whereas I think often the friction happens when something goes from being 100% indie to 100% corporate. And actually, then it's just this kind of finding the way, but because it's been so gradual. And again, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, we've brought a few people from ELC over, you know, where we feel like we need the support, particularly things on infrastructure, on finance, you know, we're now reporting into a public company, there's kind of different things that we need to grow to do. But ultimately, you know, they paid a big amount of money for Decium. So actually, they've always said, we want Decium to have Decium's voice. We want Decium to do what Decium does, because otherwise, what's the point in paying all of that value? So I think we've always had their support. And honestly, like for anyone who's not familiar with ELC, they are such a family-orientated company. Like they actually blow me away with how much they really care for their people. I wish more people could see some of the things they do. And I think, you know, maybe because the family's still quite involved. Fabrizio at the top is just a phenomenal, he again is actually a true genius. The way his mind thinks is just phenomenal. Like we come out of sessions with him and I'm like, gosh, why don't we think of that? Like that is amazing. But ultimately the thing we always just find with them is actually they really care about us as people, about our team, about us always trying to do the right thing for us. So couldn't have picked a better partner. And I think, again, you know, when with Brendan, when we were kind of going through taking that minority investment in the first place, you know, we met with different private equity companies. There was another strategic we met with. But it always just felt like as a creator of any beauty brand, is there a better home than ELC? Like probably the best umbrella of luxury beauty brands in the world. And they truly value the brand, I remember Leonard Lord is saying to me, we'll always put brand ahead of business. And I think that's something that always just kind of rang true and is what you would ultimately want for the home of the brand. I think we're in definitely challenging times when we're, we just feel like the pandemic is over. It springs up again. The economy is definitely struggling. You know, we're dealing with the implications of a war. 
But at the same time, I feel like there's this energy in the industry and there's so much innovation. What excites you about the future of the beauty industry? I think that there really is this drive to do good. And I think, you know, we are we are slowly changing things that I think fear mongering isn't a way to sell beauty products anymore. And actually, I also think things that we can do in the beauty industry can inspire other industries. And likewise, beauty can be inspired from other industries too. But I just think, you know, this kindness we actually see in human nature, I think wasn't around maybe even 10 years ago, maybe longer than that, that actually it just feels a nice place to be where actually brands support each other, people support each other. Everyone generally wants the world to become a better place. And I think, you know, we, we see that like everyone's heart breaks when there's something that happens in the world. And, you know, we always make a donation. We'll do anything we can, make a stance, whatever we need to do. And we're seeing more and more brands do that. And I think that is important because politicians can go so far, but actually companies have big voices, they have big pockets, and actually they can make a difference too. And I think consumers are starting to demand they do, which again, I think is a good thing. And, and ultimately, a lot of this is powered by social media, by podcasts, by, you know, the world of what previously was maybe kind of magazines, it was the main kind of voice, has actually been now much led by community. It's far more organic. It feels far less paid for by advertisers. And actually, therefore, the human opinion, I think, will always now be most powerful. Yeah. If there is one thing that you could change about the beauty industry, what would it be? <sighs> Definitely the fear mongering. I knew you were going to say that. I agree. I think that it's it happens a lot in indie beauty, and I think sometimes it's unintentional, and it's by founders who are so passionate about what they believe, but may not be based on complete information. And I also feel like it's sometimes I have these conversations or panels where indie brands are like, but it was our idea and big beauty stole it, but they're not really doing it. I'm like, but you can't have that conversation because you can't approach it that way. Because if we all want things to change, big beauty has to adopt it because they have the scale to make the change happen. So I think it is sort of like bridging that divide between big beauty as kind of, I don't know, not doing it right and indie beauty having sort of the values right because they inform each other. And, you know, I think that's kind of where the fear mongering comes in. It's almost a defensive stance, I think. Yeah, I agree. And actually also, I think there's the confusion. I mean, we launched The Ordinary to try and help with confusion in terms of having that transparency about the ingredient. You know, we took inspiration from healthcare, from pharmacy. If you have a headache, you walk into a pharmacy, you want to buy aspirin, you know, maybe it's between $3 and $6, but it's not between $3 and $300. So we took inspiration from that because I actually think healthcare pharmacy, I think is actually quite a clear area where you know the ingredient, this kind of integrity in the pricing. So we tried to do that through the ordinary, but I still look at the industry and think, gosh, it's actually more confusing than ever. So I would also love to clear up some of that confusion. I agree. I think technology is going to help us there because I think that there are these amazing platforms that now provide transparency sort of through the supply chain that didn't exist before. So hopefully that'll get us some clarity in the industry and educate consumers, which at the end of the day, it is about the consumers. 
Yeah, and the more consumers are educated, the more empowered they are to keep driving the industry to be better. Yeah. Nicola, thank you so much. I literally could speak with you for another two hours, but I'm getting the hook on the side. (laughs) (laughs) I could speak for the same length too. We'll have to do this again. I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. Hi, I'm Nicola, and for me, it's a matter of kindness. I truly believe that everything we want to achieve in the world, we can do through being kind. And I really believe it's a future of business and it's a future of just being human. For Nicola, it's a matter of kindness. When you ask her about Decium and achieving every indie beauty's dream, a strategic exit to the Estee Lauder companies, she defers to the vision of Brandon Truex and her team, the first sign of a natural-born leader. Brandon built and almost broke Decium. It was Nicola who picked up the pieces after his death, nurturing her team and building the business, coming out the other side with Brandon's vision intact and a brand that has become a runaway success. Leadership is a collection of key skills that you can cultivate, but Nicola's empathetic leadership and embodiment of the brand's radical transparency ethos cannot be learned, but it should certainly be emulated. If you like what you heard, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's a matter of as a production of Beauty Matter. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media.